welcome to Try Not to Blink. Today's show is going to start with a friendly debate on what students struggle with most when fitting scleral contact lenses. Then we'll discuss America's first whole eyeball transplant surgery. Then we're going to chat with our oldest and wisest guest to ever join the show, Dr. Frida Sattel. And then we will wrap up with some fascinating facts on the demographics of optometry. What I saw, optometry, the classes and whatnot that I went to are not the classes today where you go into all different aspects of optometry so that it is truly, truly a profession of which I'm very proud to be part of. We'd like to thank the amazing people at Valley Contacts who have made this podcast possible, makers of stellar gas permeal lenses and the incredible custom stable scleral lens. I'm your host, Dr. Roya Habibi, and joining me is my co-host, Dr. Sheila Morrison. Let's do this, Sheila. Hi, Roya. Hi, Sheila. <laughs> um, Sheila, we on our Instagram had a very fun question proposed to our um to us, I guess you could say. Um, it is from hashtag, uh, well, no, I'll keep it, uh, I'll keep it a secret because I didn't ask if I could say, but the question was, do you think students struggle more with the mechanical or disease aspect of fitting scleral lenses? I want your answer first. So I think it depends on at what point of their career that they're at. So I think initially, absolutely, it's all about that mechanical, like the fit. There's, I think that that's what the question means by mechanical or disease aspect. Yeah. Um, and I think that when you're starting out, you can get very wrapped up in just the basics of getting a lens to fit properly. And to be honest, when we're first learning, it's easy to really just focus on that because that takes a lot of attention and a lot of, you know, practice. Um, and then the actual disease aspect and maybe complication management takes a little bit of a wayside. And then as you gain more experience, attention will come away from the actual fit of the lens and the, the act of getting the lens to be the right shape and actually satisfactory for vision. And then we can focus more on complications as we become more advanced. So I think students don't really think far enough all the time into the disease um, aside from just basic indications. And I think that comes later. Totally. Yeah, I, I think 100% my answer is agreed mechanical. And that is just like the fitting itself. Part of it is just like the fact that the fitting is challenging, right? And then part of it is that I feel like the early stage of learning is when you overfit, right? Like you don't know when yes. to say good is enough. And so yes. I feel like that's something that I learned pretty early on. It's beneficial when you go through a contact lens residency because you have such a concentration of fitting. But that's what I realized I did the most or I overdid the most was just overfitting and over being overly nitpicky. Like patient was happy, vision was good. And then I still found something I didn't like that wasn't causing a health problem. So the disease, yes or no, it didn't matter. I was just being overly concerned with the mechanics of the fit. And that's also not necessarily necessary. 
Not necessarily. I agree so much with that. And that's, right? it's so true. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you want to be really in the good books or the other side with the labs too. Eventually those yes. redos got to cut down, you know? Oh yes. I really like, they talked about doing this in the past and then they took it away, but I really would like to have a ranking system because if you had a ranking of how many refits you have, wouldn't you be a little more like, you know, maybe make the lens settle a little longer, you know, like wait before you make a change, one more visit, you know, would you be as quick to make a change if you, if you knew your change was going to negatively impact your rating scale? <laughs> and that's walking, that's walking a fine line and it depends on what is at stake. So what's the reward? So I feel like just pride. if it's, if everything balances out properly, then that's a great system for the love of it balanced with doing the right thing for the patient versus, yes. okay, my fit's done on this lens regardless of what it looks like because I want to be number one always. No, because so, you still need a happy patient, right? But like yeah. if you're not doing it in like two to three lenses at least, you need a class. And it's and also not as good training. for your patients. It's not as good for your patient, right? Like. If you're taking that way longer, like two to three fits more than your peers, then maybe something you need to change something, right? Well, we see this in the clinic too all the time. Actually, having meetings about it recently on, you know, getting too close to the warranty period being up to even make those changes. So as you nitpick and change and change and change, there's nothing good about it. Taking no. chair time was which costs money and takes time away from other visits that can be revenue generating. Yes. And yeah, it's just, it gets taxing on everybody if we have to bring people back over and over. So yes. I have a question for you then yes. on your initial fits. So here's a debate. Yes. Um, our office is a split. Some of us do this. Some of us don't. When you're fitting lenses, do you have a settling period uh, with trial lenses before you order that first set? Or do you just pop it on, take your best guess? And then with your, with your first actual order is when you let them settle and make more refined changes. Good question. I Do you know what I'm asking? Absolutely. Yeah. Do I let the lens settle before I make a final decision on what I'm going to order? That's right. And on your order. So do you order yes. based off a settled lens or a, or a non-settled lens? For a generally normal eye, and that even falls into like, you know, your keratoconus or your graft, you know, like a generally easy fit. I don't wait that long. I would wait like five minutes because I, you know, you generally know what's going to change. There's not usually a huge change for a generally normal eye. It's the teacher listeners. Eyes. How much, how much settling? Like what, what are the things that you can predict on a fairly easy fit? I mean, on a fairly easy fit, you're expecting around 120 micron settling ish. What? That's the average mm -hmm. according to what the old Pacific, um, mm -hmm. Maybe back in your day and age, did you do those studies, Sheila? <laughs> they were around. So they, and then, yeah. And then the other thing on, on that is most of the settling happens in the beginning anyways. So in that first right. hour. Right. So, so at that point, say if you do happen to have enough time to have them wearing a lens for 30, 40 minutes, that's pretty much a pretty, you know, that's where most of the settling happens. I would say realistically, I never had a patient in a room with a lens on more than 10 to 15. I mean, maybe it was longer than that, but especially back in Seattle, when I saw like 25 people a day, there's no way they had the lens on that long unless I'd made them go and leave, but that also would really disrupt my flow. So I think generally speaking, so long as you're giving yourself adequate clearance to start, it's really the edge refinement that's the hardest. And so long as you're confident the lens is not, you know, moving a lot or, you know, your rotation markers are where they are at stably, 
at least for me, that that usually worked. And I always, always have the patient, like, I did not want to dispense a lens in the office unless it's a new fit and they need to learn. Like, I did not want to waste my time with that appointment. They come in wearing the lens. You have it on the eye at least two hours. That, for me, kind of just worked out timing-wise. Send it to you. Like, I almost sent everyone their lenses because then they could wear it into the appointment. Okay, next next question. Then I'll tell you what I do, which is similar but just a little different. How about this? On the first lens you order for patients how and say you know they do need front surface torque at some point yes they're not neutralized with this fear so you know it's coming do you put the torque power on the first lens or wait for the second lens definitely don't put it in the first one unless i don't ever put it in the first one because that is just such a like a train wreck and i've done like i'm sure you've done the same thing as me like I've done it before. Like, I think I know exactly what's going to happen. I can predict this. And then I just like kick myself because then the patient's unsatisfied because you tried to guess what was going to happen. And then there's... So what know, are you talking about that happens that you don't expect? Just the rotation. You, you if you're going to put front torque power on a scleral lens, you need to know where the lens is going to sit on the eye. So what I would always do is I would show them spherical equivalence and then I would show them the torque power and they would be like, oh, wow, torque, I love it. And then I would say, I am not going to give you this. You're going to get this, i.e. this spherical equivalent. And I want to see you back and we'll be able to give you that, the the cylinder power, once the fit is correct. Otherwise, it's it's worthless. It's, you're going to come in not trusting me because the lens is rotating. So that's usually how I did it. Or the lens, because the, this, the haptics were so, uh, you know, like needed so much adjusting, maybe the lens was actually flexing. Like I chased my tail on that a time or two before too, time or two as well. If the lens is flexing at all, you'll get some false front torque need when really it's just that you need to adjust the shape itself. That's a wonderful pearl. And okay, so you and I are so aligned on that. I literally never put front service torque on the first lens. The only exception for me is when I have a, sometimes with like a free form where it's very clear that if I'm taking that perfect glove shape in the lens is, I mean, I'm very, very likely to be quite stable on the first lens because of that irregular shape. We make a lock and key and if the patient happens to have enough front surface torque that they like really won't have usable vision with a sphere and from out of town. So all those you things. Do. So if I'm yeah. really shooting for the stars, somebody flies in for an appointment, I will yes. aim if the, if the power is more than like two diopters that they need. I know they're not going to be particularly happy with a sphere. But other than that, and that doesn't happen. That whole scenario does not, not happen that off. often. Yeah. No. Okay, wait, so wait. Sphere then all the way. I have a serious question for you. Mm-hmm. 60-year-old patient. Mm-hmm. You know, keratoconic, whatever. Do you give them distance only? Monovision? Or what do you do to start? Because you might put put the vision in. They're like, wow, my distance vision's great. And then maybe they're holding their little trial lens up and they're like, but I can't read my phone. Like, what are you going to do? They've never worn contacts I usually do. Either. Yeah, so I usually do distance only bilateral and it's if say if they're acuity potential it depends on the lens design that we're using as well so the expectations that I set with them are dependent on well actually let me backtrack 
we have these conversations before selecting the lens design. So I'll talk to them about, first of all, we'll do a distance acuity potential test with like a starting lens, for example. Say if they don't have very like remotely equal vision between the right and left eye. Say if they are like very, very far off from 20, 25, 20, 30, like good driving vision. I might recommend just that we kind of bypass using a multifocal anyways, because they're going to get the best vision overall quality from using single vision and then wearing reading glasses on top. If they're fine with that, I just roll with it. Patients who have a need where they really are, have a strong motivation for, you know, uh, multifocal without reading glasses, I'll still always start with two distance eyes to start, um, especially if they've never tried monovision in the past, because I always want to try the multifocal first where we can attempt to get eyes, two eyes on similar plane at a variety of distances. Um, one exception, though, is if when I'm doing their fit, I always do a BV test as well. And what I find is when we give vision back sometimes, especially in patients that have maybe suppressed a really low vision eye for a long time, and we put you know these contacts on and suddenly they've got usable vision in two eyes, often there is a disparity between the eyes. And if I'm getting a lot of like a huge difference where they're getting big time double, I may go straight to monovision for those patients because that'll eliminate the double. They get one eye that's a lot better again for distance, one's good for near. So there's all these scenarios. It's not black and white at all for me in that decision. And it depends on what the patient's goals are. Just to summarize, would you Mm -hmm. say majority of your patients over 60 are like, what's your distance only multifocal monovision percentage breakdown? I would say more and more with the technology being so good these days is more and more are multifocal. Um, That is like a premier. Often if they need a front surface torque too, there's, you know, not every lens design can do that, but a lot of them can. But the caveat is that it's a multifocal with the expectation of doing some daily activities, but needing reading glasses still for the itty bitty, because especially if they have irregular, you know, corneas, they're not getting crisp 2020 anyways. So what my goal would be, and probably more times than not, we're achieving the vision that they can operate around their house, do something where they're cooking on the counter, um, you know, have dinner, but there's still um, the expectation anyways is set that they may need more than likely need reading glasses for extended reading or really small stuff. And then we so some patients it surprises me and they do really well. Um, are we talking just of, of people over 60? Like, so like, you know, like needing presbyopes. I would say higher than that. Probably 40. That's pretty good. 50. And it is really good. What percentage of monovision? Quite a bit lower, but I use monovision still quite a bit because I do find that there are a lot of people that I see with BV problems in the end with their specialty lenses. And it's just a wonderful solution to just eliminate those that don't do very well with prism and glasses because they've never had it. And the vision is different between the eyes anyways. You can just use that to your advantage and just kind of kill a bunch of stuff with monovision. I kind of, this sounds bad, but I kind of like when people have diplopia and when they wear a sclera lens because I'm like oh this is such a home run for monovision it's such a home run and it's so easy you know what I mean it's so easy I'll say that honestly I was probably flipped I had opposite percentages and I should have been using monovision more or sorry multifocals more because the technology really is getting there Um, but I I I just so quickly will just undercorrect one eye maybe, and I usually will check for dominance. But I'll or if their right eye's potential is twenty twenty, left is twenty thirty. I'm gonna undercorrect the left eye usually, right? Whatever for whatever the 
scenario is less seeing eye I typically will undercorrect the non, a little bit. The non-strong distant, whatever I see is worse yeah, in the distance for worse driving a car. Eye, yeah, yeah. Then it ends up like their brain's already kind of suppressed that eye a little bit anyway. Now give it a exactly. good solution. And in the future, they may actually have better vision and binocular vision through time. But mm-hmm. um, But I like that. I like that. We need to work with the technology we have. It's always getting better. We don't need to write it off because it was bad in the past, right? Exactly. Love it. Okay, well, switching gears, let's talk about the trending topic. It was like on multiple of my email alerts. I don't know why, but I got two email alerts about this world first. Tell us, Sheila. All over the socials. All over. So, yeah, and it was so there is the world's first human eye transplant. Although my like theory is that this is just, you know, the first one that's reported in the media. I'm sure somewhere out there, some <laughs> right. crazy lab is doing some really cool science that Maybe they don't really share with the world. Absolutely. Yeah. You're so right. <laughs> exactly. So, whatever. But, anyways, the first one is CNN, all these kind of, you know, major news stations. Um, there's actually a huge, huge team in the US. Um, I think it was a team of, I want to say, what was it? Like, more than 40 doctors and they were able to successfully transplant a full eye which I would have thought they would have done that in the past but I guess it's there's a lot of problems with blood flow to keep the tissue alive and so in this case it was the first successful and by successful this you know has not been a great deal of time but more than six months so there was actually a war veteran who was a 46 year old male And um, he had had, uh, I think it was an electric voltage injury that caused a whole bunch of problems for him, Um, major disfiguration and all kinds of things. So he actually had a full face transplant on one side as well. And they uh, were able to transplant the eye and have detected direct blood flow to the retina and the cornea does appear healthy. Now, the caveat of this, though, of course, is he can't see. And the reason for that is the optic nerve. So optic nerve is still remains to be a big mystery. You know, we know if glaucoma, perfect example. I mean, if we could regenerate the tissue or the nerves once they die or once they're damaged, that would be a huge, huge thing. And people have really been looking at, you know, stem cells and all these ideas for a very long time with very little success, very low to no success, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, kind of a cool kind of development showing that now, I mean, that it's possible to transplant an eye and keep it alive. So, like, they're proud that they kept it alive. What would be a dead eye? It's a stupid question, but... Well, so that's... I, it's, to be perfectly honest, when I was reading this, I was thinking, well, I mean, wouldn't it just be easier to just use a prosthetic then and save a lot of the energy and time? Like, I, I don't know. His other side, that this patient doesn't didn't have... Um, like an eye to match. So I, again, I, then you'd be, say if you had somebody who lost an eye and their other eye was still operating and then you find a donor with a completely different eye size and shape. And I guess maybe they could match the donor eye color if they were really advanced. Yeah. Apparently it wasn't. Yeah. So it's just an interesting thing. But I guess the point is that it's possible, which could open up the possibility for future. <laughs> the point. <laughs> the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Point well, is... then why don't you just do bionic and make the nerve like a little wire and make it work that way, too? Totally I don't know. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. Why didn't they but do it? Trending in the media. We like trending. to bring the latest and the greatest to the audience and make sure everyone knows what's up in, in all the iNews. So, I mean, that's the what's first, happened. So This, this is an episode of Superlatives, right? The first eye transplant. And now we have the wisest and oldest guest. 
Today we have two extra special guests. I want to start with the first one. It was her idea, truly. So she actually uh, pitched the idea to one of our teammates. Um, so Dr. Nora Conway. First, I'll welcome you, Dr. Nora Conway. Um, she is a 2014 graduate at PCO or Salis University. Um, she recently completed a residency in pediatric vision therapy and. <laughs> Theory, therapy and uh, rehabilitation in Manitoba through Pacific, and then returned back to Pennsylvania and is working at a um, the Keystone Vision Development Center, working and specializing in binocular vision. And so Nora reached out and she said that she'd love to see an extra special someone interviewed on our podcast. So this extra special someone here is a currently 102 years old and was one of the first women to graduate from optometry school. Um, this was in 1943 when she graduated specifically. Her story is fascinating, she says, and she is a cool part of women in optometry. And so without further ado, Dr. Frida Sattel, welcome to our show. Thank you. There were already women in optometry um, about starting 10 years before I got there. And when I got there, fascinating. the dormitory for girls who were not from Philadelphia, our dormitory was the third floor of the dean's home. That was Dr. Fitch. Was that a protection thing? Or why, yeah. why was it there? Or that was just, there was only a couple ladies? Well, no, it was 1939, and there already were seniors before me. But because of the few women going into this, the dormitory, instead of having that with the fellows that came, the girls were in this third floor of the dean's home. So there were women before me at least um, 10 years, I would say. But my class, we started off with seven, and five of us graduated. Why didn't they graduate, the girls that didn't stay? Um, one girl dropped out the, um, in the first year. And the other one dropped out about in her second year, the rest of us. I think we had, we had anatomy. And I think when she went down, we actually worked, we actually worked with a body, not just out of the book. And when she saw that we were Was going, it a human body? Was, oh yeah, I can still see the man I was in. Oh, wow. I can still see him with a with a tattoo on his arm. Oh my! Wow! It sounds like your anatomy class was actually fairly advanced then. We first had cat anatomy, but we worked with a cat the first year. In the second year in anatomy, we worked with cadavers. They don't do that anymore. Fascinating. In your cadaver lab, <laughs> in the cadaver lab, did they have you looking at 
full body anatomy? Yes. Or were you picking the eyes apart? No, full body anatomy. Full body anatomy. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's pretty advanced for optometry school because when we went through our programs, we did full body anatomy in our undergraduate portion. And Roya, I don't know about you, we did have a cadaver lab briefly. But I mean, I would not have imagined that, you know, in the 1930s and 40s that they had that as well. Yeah, it's definitely here. Berkeley required it as a prereq as well. And of course, I went straight from high school. I didn't. Oh, yeah. Right into optometry school? I went from high school to optometry. Now, most of the people in my class, of course, they were fellows. But most of the people in my class had tried to get into medical school. And when they couldn't, they came into optometry. So, and working and being in that, I was the only girl in my section. We worked according to alphabet. There were four different classes. It wasn't all just one class. You were divided into four. And I was the only female in my section. And some of them, they were... Tell me, tell me while you were in school, do you have any core memories that you remember, aside from the tattoo in Anatomy uh, Lab, that you, uh, that are fond memories from you? Now, what... 75 years ago, right? Yeah, I guess so. I'm 102. There was no problem of being a female. Sometimes there were jokes, and sometimes I didn't understand what they were talking about. And the instructor, one of the, in the anatomy class, he had me do a special project in his stuff, in his section. He had an office off the classroom, and he told them, to cut it out because, <laughs> but they were kidding, but I was no problem being a girl in that, in the classes. And love that. But again, um, I think I might have been, my roommate also was about my, my age. We went straight from high school right into, you had to have so many classes, so many courses, so that when I was in my particular high school, I had um, some courses. There were only three of us in that classroom because we had to have so much math. Any other questions? Was that the hardest part of optometry school, or what would you say was the hardest part that you remember from school? Well, it was... Physiologue, I can't remember the course, but again, the hardest course was dealt with math. But um, I did quite well in school. What made you decide that you wanted to be an optometrist in the first place? Because there was a little bit on that we read about you because you have such an amazing history that you may have had interest in journalism Um, But what made you decide that optometry was the right path, especially when there were really no women, not many women doing it? Well, 
Now again, this was 1939, right after the Depression. And my father said about my going to college, and I said, about Penn State. And he said, what would you do? And I said, I want to be a journalist. I want to write, I want to travel. He said, okay. He said, you go to school. You sound like a millennial. And he said, maybe then you could get a job at the Tribune, that's the paper in our, in our town, and you could maybe earn $10 a week. Remember, this is 1939. And he said, right. instead of that, when you go to college, when you graduate, you should have something that you can take care of yourself, that you can be sure of a job. A teacher, a nurse, he said, even optometry. And I said, oh, optometry? Yeah. So we went to visit somebody who lived in um, a small town near, near us, and she had been in optometry. So anyway, I enrolled, and I, be, I studied optometry, and um, for sure, it gave me means to take care of myself, not depending on, on, on any other type of a job. But when I finished, then there was the course of Penn State. That was sometime, I guess about 10 years after I graduated from the School of Optometry. That was PCO, Pennsylvania College of Optometry. And then later on, there was something at State College where Ewald, an optometrist, was talking about visual therapy. So I listened, I took that course, and I went on, and I was the first woman to graduate from the Gazelle Institute in child development. Wow. Well, yeah, when... When you first graduated, was there such a thing as vision therapy? Like, what was, was that taught then, or was that a well, focus, vision, well, no. or was it more refractive? It was not vision therapy. This is, um, this might be 10 years later. So when you went through school, it wasn't really being taught? No, there was no... There was no therapy class in school at that time. So when, totally. before we started recording, Dr. Sattel was telling me about how she was the first woman at the Gazelle Institute, and she has lots of memorabilia around her apartment here. Um, so you can see a, a picture where she stands out pretty well in that front row. Very um, cool. We'll link that to our <laughs> show notes. And... Um, and that uh, that was something that she did, uh, what you said, about 10 years after you graduated. Right. And it was a year-long program. She would go up a week out of every month to New York and uh, take this course where she specialized in binocular vision and vision therapy. And wow, the doctor's name, it was the, the 
who was the, in that course, she was a psychiatrist, and she was hmm. part of that course, the gazelle. And when I went up a week at time, and when December came, I asked if I could see her before I went home, and she said yes. So I went to her office, and I said, I've enjoyed the course, but I don't know if I will be coming back. Why? Something bothering you in this course? She's a psychiatrist, remember? And I said, yes, because right. part of it was that my, ch uh, my daughter, when she was a baby, I had her in a playpen, and they were saying that this was not, should, you should not do, because a child has to crawl, has to look around, and playpens, if you do it for just a few minutes or whatever, but not for any length of time. So I was telling her that, and she looked at me and she said, so that was has happened. Don't you think you should continue the course so that you can advise other parents what not to do with your children? So and that was enough very to get interesting. you to stay? <laughs> so therapy was part of my practice. Were you seeing patients and wanting to do something extra, or what was your push to want to bring vision therapy into your practice? Well, remember I said that I had gone to the course, I was interested in hearing about the Dr. Ewald, who was an optometrist, mm -hmm. and that was his main practice was visual therapy. And it intrigued me, and I liked the work, so I went on and studied more. And then I, too, had a room for visual therapy. Interesting. Did you also treat other ocular disease or have any other favorites besides vision therapy in your practice? Sorry? What else did you like to treat besides vision problem? Well, was binocular that was just problems? part of it. And then... The time that I spent with the patient was not 20 minutes, it was an hour. I asked them what their profession was because different professions were called for a different way of prescribing that maybe you needed more than one pair of glasses. As I was telling absolutely, that um, one of the patients came from Beth, from Bethlehem Steel. Remember, I'm in the Steel town. And he did something, he worked in a blast furnace, cleaning a blast furnace. And he had, tri he had trifocals in the safety glasses, but he wasn't happy. Why? Because his work was close. So when he was looking at something right in front of him, he was looking through a distant prescription. That wouldn't work. So he had a pair of glasses safety glasses just for that particular distance. And because of that, I got more patients again from Bethlehem Steel. So it was prescribing according to what you did. And then I even went more that if a person was having other types of a problem that would also interfere with vision, 
I try to have the patient do that. For instance, there was, I can still see it, there was a little girl, she must have been about seven years old, and there was practically no prescription at all. Maybe a quarter, but, that, but her vision wasn't coming. So I referred her to an ophthalmologist who in turn referred her to Baltimore, to, was the school in Baltimore? To the um, anyway, John Hopkins. John Hopkins. Anyway, this little girl, they took her to Hopkins, and indeed, there was something pressure against her optic nerve. I'll never forget that. Oh, and, yeah. And the surgeon was shocked that an optometrist could refer something like this. And had that gone on a little bit more, she would have lost the, the optic nerve, would have been in trouble, and she would have never been able to see out of that eye. So that is one of my, again, you asked me about other things. It was knowing how to diagnose, how to take care of people who needed a prism. That's another thing. There's the stories about that. So, yes, I accomplished a lot of things and accomplished a lot of things, yes. Well, one thing worth noting, too, is you actually, your father was an optometrist as well, correct? And That's you right. joined his private practice, so you ended up a private practice owner as well. Yes, my father died when he was 56. So, Oh, I'm sorry to hear and that. And in those days, women in practice. So when my dad died, I was female, and I was 20. Young. Yes. 26 or something like that. <laughs> so there was an optical place in Pittsburgh called Triangle Optical. And when the sales rep came and he went back to his boss, and then one day he came back, when he came to see me again, he said that he was glad to see that I was seeing more patients because when he first came in after my dad died, he went back to his boss and he said, she's never going to make it. But she made Aww. it because I did went out of my way. If a patient had a repair job, I took it down to the lab and brought it back and he could have it. When I needed other things, I joined a woman's club called Seropterus. I don't know whether you ever heard of that club or not. No. It's a, I don't know whether it is today or not, but it was a club for women, an international. And I joined that and I got to know people. And then where I had my lunch, that I, where I went, I sort of got to know those people. And little by little, that practice went on. And I was showing when I when I came today, Doctor Satel was showing me um, that a friend of hers 
had shared on a local or Johnstown PA um, Facebook page uh, a little bit about how someone had shared a, a post about her and, and just kind of a little bit about how much they enjoyed her. And there are pages of printed Aww. comments of people that just have stories and wonderful, um, wonderful things to say about how much of a, a treasure she is just for our area. She was telling me a little bit about some of her specific patients that she helped, um, you know, with the amblyopia and different problems mm. as children that she still keeps in contact with today. Um, so she's just very loved oh. in our area. <laughs> she's touched a lot of lives. Well, it sounds, it sounds like you've really, over the years, put in that personal touch, which is a huge reminder and lesson for modern optometry in connecting with the human being and the person as a whole. Because with all the specialties in optometry today, sometimes we can get wrapped up in a particular structure or a particular disease. But when it comes to truly making people happy, it, we have to look at people as a whole. And it sounds like, I mean, it's very clear you've done that from the very beginning, early, early on. Um, and as a practice owner, do you have any tips for other practice owners today? Then what would be your top one or two tips in owning a business and in keeping your business successful for practice owners? And that's one more thing. And there was something called the I-O-O-L, the International Optic Ophthalmological League. And that gave me the opportunity to see the world because it was international. There were conferences in China. There were conferences in Denmark, all over the world. And I could show them. Did you visit all those places? Army. Did you visit all those places? All of you went to the conference every year? I went almost every year. It was tax deductible. <laughs> and I was showing her <laughs> some, some of the places that all the British Isles, Denmark, Rome, Italy, Greece, they were everywhere. And I was able to see the world thanks to optometry. I bet your patients loved hearing about those stories about you traveling and learning more so that you could help them. Yes. yes. And to see also how optometry was treated, that was one of the reasons that we wrote. This was something international, Australia. Because little by little, optometry became more than just fitting glasses. It became a profession. Well, that is just a beauty that's, again, just really ties things all together. Now, what about, do you have any tips for how we can do better for our patients in that way? How do we, in modern optometry, make sure that our patients know that we care about them? One of my things I said, and it's been, oh, I was a mentor at PCO, which is now South University, of course, that I, mm-hmm. I was an adjunct professor at UPJ, 
and they had, they had courses for anybody. They asked somebody from every profession, and they asked me to represent optometry. And then anybody, wow. anybody interested, you took them into your office for three months. And then if they wanted to go to school, you sponsored them. So what I saw, optometry, the classes and whatnot that I went to are not the classes today where you go into all different aspects of optometry of so that it is truly, truly a profession of which I'm very proud to be part of. Now, in that school, in that setting, when you were a mentor, were you a teacher at the school as well? So on faculty at PCO? I was an average professor. Uh, I would go up and I would speak. Remarkable. So among travel, travel, private practice, you had your hand in everything and you also taught at the school. Now, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was an interesting thing that we heard was that your actual diploma read something along the lines of him or that he was then able to practice optometry. Do you remember anything about that? Yes, yes. My diploma read giving him the right to practice because they were Isn't that funny? What a wild... Because they weren't going to make a special... They weren't about to make a girl's one yet, hey? Right. (laughs) But I showed... You, Nora, yeah. The other diplomas I have. She has quite a few. And the one is... <laughs> Can you tell me about some of the other diplomas that you have? Oh, yes. Give, give, give me the... I won the first woman optometrist of the year for the state of Pennsylvania. And then I got from all over the alumni award... That's from all over the United States, the Presidential Medal of Honor. Oh, my goodness. So, I got These are some high accolades, and in talking with you, we can really, we can see why you would be so deserving of these awards. Optometrist of the Year for the state of Pennsylvania, and then the most is the Alumni Board, as from all over... That's it for national. So those were the wow. accolades that I am very. That's really proud amazing. Of. Thank you. Yep. She keeps them displayed. Well, you should be proud. Those are big <laughs> accolades. I'm sorry. She said you should be proud. Now, in the last bit, absolutely. And you know, before we close for today. Are there any final pieces of advice that you would give for other practice owners or for other optometrists in the profession? Do you have any words of wisdom or maybe one word of wisdom for our listeners? I treated, I said, I treated my patients like they were family, even if there were problems that had nothing to do with optometry. And this profession allows one, like my father told me, having a practice, having that degree, allowed me to know that this was something that could be my income 
but I never had a worry about not being able to earn my own living. And in today's world, if you don't have a private practice, there are enough places for the optometrist to do the work of the optometrist. It's a profession especially for any girl, as I could prove it. <laughs> yeah, my class was about 65% women, and that was 10 years ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. My class, like I said, we graduated five. Mm -hmm. But I was able to accomplish something that to me is even amazing that I even get cards today. A wonderful profession for any girl. Well, that's a wonderful closing word of advice. And we want to thank both of you very, very much for coming today to spend a little bit of time with us. It's inspirational to hear from you and to see, hear from you with these stories of how things have changed and how you got to where you are. Um, and we want to thank you for everything you've done for the profession over the years. You certainly have um, definitely earned all those accolades and we look forward to, um, you know, continuing to carry on the things that you've done and started as far as women in optometry and also just for the profession in general. So thank, thank you, you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thank you. Well, thank you. For asking me. Thanks for, for being willing. <laughs> this is the, this is the fun final way to end the story of my life in optometry. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Well, we may call you back next year anyways for more updates and to <laughs> have another chat with you sometime. So thank you again. And uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. What an extra special interview we just had. I, I want to take a second to send a special thanks uh, or say a special thanks to Dr. Nora Conway, who was on here with us just now. She clearly has a super special relationship with Dr. Sattel. Um, they're both obviously in vision development, but being able to have a mentor that has been, you know, in the profession for as long as she has and has the, like, she has the, I don't know, the history of being able to talk through all the things we have learned through the ages is so special. Absolutely. I mean, oh man, I don't know that I've really ever heard and of all the podcasts that I've tuned into many, if any, that have had guests on the show over a hundred years old. That's over pretty cool. Over years old. And <laughs> well, exactly. I know it's, there's a lot of wealth of information there. And the th one of the things I'm taking away from this is, well, not to reinvent the wheel. So as much as we, I feel we'll look toward what is coming, what's coming out of the schools for growth and, you know, connect with students and the generations, the up and coming rising stars. What about looking the other direction sometimes and taking a minute to take that part in of the journey of those that have taken so many steps ahead of us? Totally. Because there's some remarkable things that have happened and some parallels. I couldn't believe how patient focused she was in the to the point of actually specifically talking about all the same things that we've been bringing up over time about looking at a patient as a whole absolutely understanding their habits and their work needs and all this stuff and it's you know 
practice was not archaic back then. That is, that's high level thinking, looking at humans. And in in fact, I believe that through some generational changes and, you know, as things in, in our profession have changed, some of that actually has been lost in some environments to the point where now we're having to talk about it to bring it back because people need and expect that. Totally. No, I'm just, as you're talking, I'm even thinking about when you said it's not archaic, I'm thinking about like arguments I used to get when I was a teenager talking to my parents, like Mm -hmm. my mom and I'd be like, school's not like that anymore, mom. You know, like, (laughs) you know, when you would just say like, things have changed. Like they don't know anything. Like you're so wise. (laughs) But honestly, like (laughs) listening to her, Am I going to talk like that when I'm her age? Like, it sounds the same. Like, she's talking about patients providing the best patient care or, like, being interested enough in some new field called binocular vision or vision therapy that she goes out of her right. way as the first first female to do... A literal pioneer right. in this. yeah. Like, what? She's... <laughs> It's cool. I know. Respect your elders, people. Respect, Respect your elders. Your that's for sure. Elders, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I like this too. And um, I don't know if you've ever visited. There's uh, along the lines of like antiques and vintage and history. There's a lot to be said. Like even if you look at old equipment and some of the like museums of optometry that are kind of scattered around North America and in Europe that people have these collectibles and things like that. Like the Contact Lens Museum out at Pacific yes. University. Um, a lot of our industry partners have these like really cool displays of vintage antique and some of that stuff really hasn't changed. Like we, this week we were looking for a trial frame that was missing out of one of the rooms. So we pulled them all out of all the rooms <laughs> and realized like, I don't think they've changed those things, the trial frame in like ever. Never. I Maybe it's the exact same one that, you know, doctors to tell you, <laughs> I actually think it could be <laughs> right. because they look like they are probably the exact same. <laughs> So some things never change. Some things are all techie now, but some of the human things are, there is nothing, there's nothing new about these concepts and it's important not to let it fall by the wayside. Hey, what about women and the prevalence in optometry today? Because we've seen a huge shift. In fact, I remember not that long ago as I was on, you know, admissions committees when I was teaching at Houston and looking at the demographic of applicants even. So Believe it or not, it's actually, whereas with Dr. Sattel's year, she was the only female in her no, class. No, seven. Or in one that portion seven. of her class. Oh, yeah. She had one her of seven. But in quarters. her one course, yeah, she yeah, said yeah. she had her only. Yeah. Right, right. So the one, she was the only one. And she didn't mind. Remember, she said she. Yes. Oh, you, yeah. So she didn't. She had no problem being the only female. Yeah. Good. And she was <laughs> right in there. Today, it's not an issue. In fact, we almost need more males to come back to optometry because it's turning into a flip where it's actually the schools have more women than men these days. And that's a fact. Yeah. Um, looking at the percentage of, and that's in the schools, the school number of women is quite high. Overall in percentages class, of women optometrists. Do you remember yeah, how many yeah. males were in your class and what was your class size? We were, Pacific was pretty split. So our size was, I believe it was around like 90 yep. and we were pretty much a split. So, Ber- and that, I don't know that that's really changed. At Berkeley, it was not. It was, we had like, I want to say 68 or something students and we had okay. 13. Teen guys in my class, something like that. Oh wow! So it was already girl power. Super at girl that time. power over in Berkeley. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I don't think that it, there's anything really good about like being too much one way or the other in our profession. I like the balance. In fact, in the clinic, I like we have we have male and female technicians. 
And I like that. Oh, totally. We have totally. male and female opticians. And I, I love that totally. just to have a bit of a balance because historically, and of course there are more women that just tends to, that's kind of more common, but it's nice to have balance. Totally. I'm looking at a figure here that I just found um, about the percentage of women optometrists over time. Tell us. And yeah, it's on a steady increase from 2012, 37%, 2021, 45%. And then again, as I mentioned, the new grads are, are higher percentages of women. So really interesting how things have changed. Well, another thing that's kind of interesting I found in women of optometry, this is a 2020, 2021 figure as well. Which state do you think, well, this is a U.S. thing, so maybe you don't know states, but okay, let's play a better game. So Berkeley was in California. California versus Oregon, which is where Pacific was. Which state has more female optometrists? Well, I know this answer because you already gave it to me, kind of. My class was a split. Yours had 60% women in your class compared to the men, yep, right? Yep. So I'm going to guess that California has more women optometrists. So there is actually a 2% extra of women. So there's 52% women optometrists in okay. in Berkeley, or sorry, in California. Okay. In Oregon, it's okay. 45% percentage of women practicing okay. 45%. Yeah. The state with the least okay. number of women practicing was, do you, I mean, I know that the U.S. is... Take a yeah, guess. Yeah, just for funsies. Um, I don't know. I'm just going to guess. I mean, I can't can't imagine maybe South Dakota. <laughs> Actually, that's not that bad. It is on the lower ranking. South Dakota has 30% women. Utah, okay. 12% women working. Oh. Idaho, oh. almost 16%. Wyoming jumps up okay. to 26%. The number one state is Delaware at 53%. So above 50 is New York, Massachusetts, California, Maryland, Delaware. So anyhow, super interesting. What about what? About what? That is very interesting. I got to call you out. I just found another, another Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is number one. And that is technically, the, Puerto Rico is like what, a province, technically speaking, but still. Guam is on there. Okay, I see. I hear. I hear where you're Guam coming from is, with that. That's why you. Okay, Guam okay, is okay. a all right. Forty three so percent women. Cool. Know, kind of just, Those are fun stats. I know. I know. I think we could make some correlations, and actually, a, a good number of the the states that I see in the lower portion are more southern states. Maybe there's a lot of social, you know, economic influence there. But anyways, either way, mm-hmm. the future is female. I think that does it, doesn't it? Well, we've come to the end for today. We definitely want to hear from you. So reach out to us with your feedback, questions, stories, things you're interested in hearing from us, either through our Instagram or Facebook. And we can't close today's show without saying thanks to Valley Contacts for both making great products and for being amazing people to work with. Be sure to tune in and listen to our next episodes. But until then, try not to blink. Blink.